Um, so go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. This series called Ancient Faith, we've been looking back at the Old Testament heroes who longed for a better home, who, who like us, were waiting for all that God was going to give them and had to learn to walk with God by faith. I think we kind of sometimes have this misunderstanding that like in the Old Testament, they just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and saved themselves. But now we are saved by faith in Jesus. Well, no, they, they also were saved by faith. They didn't know all the details of Jesus. They didn't know how he was going to die on the cross and rise from the dead. But they knew they had to trust in God. They had to have faith in God. And we also have to have faith in God. So it's really helpful for us to kind of apprentice with these Old Testament saints, these elders that have gone before us. This week, we're going to be focusing in on Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 28, verses 23 through 28, and we're calling it an Exodus faith. We're going to be looking at Moses and the Exodus. Now, that's such a long story. The kind of primary narrative happens in the second book of the Bible called Exodus, and it takes place over 20 chapters. So it's a a long stretch. So we'll spend most of our time in Hebrews just looking at the descriptions of the faith there in Hebrews. Um, But what we're going to see, again, is that God was operating by faith. Moses was one of the greatest leaders, arguably the greatest leader of the Old Testament. He was seen as this great hero. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you knew this, but actually uh, the Superman story in American mythology kind of draws on Moses as well. Superman was sent to earth in this little spaceship. It was supposed to kind of be a mimicking of, of Moses arriving in his little basket, if you know the Moses story. My wife and I watched a movie, I think it was maybe six months ago, about Harriet Tubman. Any of you ever studied the life of Harriet Tubman? She was also called Moses. Why was she called that? Because she was a hero to her people. She saved hundreds of African-American slaves and got them to safety through what was called the Underground Railroad. And she was this incredible woman. She was like this tiny woman who had a traumatic brain injury and would just kind of like pass out randomly, but she was also this strong hero who would go and rescue and lead slaves to freedom. Well, all of these different stories lead back to Moses, the greatest hero of the Old Testament, and the Exodus. Exodus means departure or rescue. It's the story of God bringing his people out of Egypt. They'd become slaves in Egypt. They were being abused. They were being oppressed. They were being murdered and hurt. And God said, I hear your cries. I'm going to rescue you. Now, I want to encourage you on your own time to read the Exodus story, especially the the first narrative portions, uh, chapters 1 through 20. That's where kind of most of the action takes place. Go back this week and read those stories. They're gripping stories. If you're new to reading the Bible, a lot of times people just open up the Bible and start reading it, and then you get bogged down in the confusing parts. Um, Exodus is actually a pretty fast-paced story. It's a story of of rescue. It's a story of kind of amazing things that God did to rescue his people. And what happens is then the Exodus story becomes the identity for the people of God throughout the Old Testament. So it's the most alluded to, the most quoted, the most referenced event in the Old Testament. So just like today, we say, I know God loves me because I see what God did for me in the cross. That's how we know. That's like where we plant our flag in the ground. I know God loved me because he died on the cross for my sins and he rose from the dead. That's that's the flag we plant in the ground as New Testament Christians. In the Old Testament, before the cross was revealed, in the Old Testament, they would continually say, we know God loves us because he rescued us in the Exodus. We know that God is a saving God because he actually saved us 
out of slavery in Egypt. And so the Bible encourages us to connect those dots, to see the Exodus as the great rescue of the Old Testament, parallel to the greater rescue from sin and death through the cross. And so we'll read this text and we'll start, I'm going to start back in verse 22 because it'll kind of pick up where we were last week with Joseph, right? So Joseph rescued his people and he rescued them by, by being second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt, right? He, he had risen to this high rank and so he rescued his brothers and sisters, brought them to Egypt. But then the Exodus story picks up hundreds of years later. The new Pharaoh doesn't know who they are, doesn't love them. The people have grown larger and larger, and now the Pharaoh is, he's jealous of them, he's fearful of them, and so he starts oppressing them and holding them down as slaves. It's a story that gets played out again and again in every country and every culture across the world. And so here we have commentary from the author to Hebrews on the Old Testament, biblical inspired commentary. We read the Bible because it speaks to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So hear God's words from Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So that's where we were last week. Joseph was like, hey, God said, you're going to be here for a while, and then he's going to pull you out. And, And when that happens, bring my bones with you to the new promised land. And that's what they did in Exodus 13, that that unfolds. So now picking up in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Again, the author to Hebrews keeps Hammering home, it's by faith. It's by faith. We can look at heroes in our own generation or heroes in the Old Testament and think, man, they were just better than other people. They were just stronger than other people. And that's why they were saved. You know, they overcame by their own strength. But what we're supposed to see as we read this is, no, they they overcame by trusting in God. Not trusting in their flesh, by trusting in God and God's provision. Let me pray for us and ask God to meet us here and to help us to to apply this to our our life, our present day. Um, God, we pray that your spirit would meet us here. Uh, We confess to you that we often trust in ourselves, And so we need this message now more than ever to see that we should trust in you. We should have faith. We should run to you with our good days and our bad. So we pray that your spirit would enlighten our our hearts, our minds. Open us up to you, Lord. Help us to listen. God, help us to not be closed off, but to receive your word as you give it to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a simple outline as we move through these verses in Hebrews. And again, I'm going to kind of focus on verses 23 through 28. 22 I started with for context. And 29 talks more about the kind of finishing of the Exodus. And we'll hit that more next week as we also talk about Joshua going into the promised land. 
So we'll focus in on verses 23 through 28. Simple outline is this. We see parental faith. It talks about the faith of Moses' parents, uh, and that impacts us. We, we all have a role to play. Some of us have our own kids. Others of us are just called on to be spiritual parents in the body of Christ. So parental faith. Second point of the outline uh, that we'll move in verses 24 through 27 is leadership faith. God also calls us to be leaders. and We're not all going to be a Moses, right? But we all have some sphere of influence that God wants us to lead and contribute so we can look to Moses, see his faith, see the sacrifices he made as he trusted God, and we're going to lead others in similar ways as we walk with God by faith, leadership faith. And then the third point is saving faith. Just this general faith of God's always calling his people to trust in the provision that he grants so that we might be saved. For them, it was a physical rescue from slavery in Egypt. For us today, through Christ, we see this ultimate rescue from our slavery to sin. We all think we can dabble in sin and we'll be the one that gets away with it and doesn't conquer us, but then we end up enslaved. And only through Christ can we be set free from our slavery to sin and to death. So the first point of the outline is parental faith. Parental faith, we see this in the the faith of Moses' parents. It says in verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So not afraid, we'll deal with that a little bit more as we look at the life of Moses because a similar phrase is said about Moses. He wasn't afraid. But I just want to say right here that this doesn't mean an absolute not afraidness, right? So to walk with God by faith means I'm afraid of losing my job but I'm going to trust God more and I'm going to trust him that he's going to take care of me. Or I'm afraid of what might happen if my health declines. But you know what? I trust God more than worrying about that. And so even though I might have these lesser fears, they're not going to control me, right? So when it talks about Moses' faith, not, uh, Moses' parents not being afraid, and later it's going to talk about Moses not being afraid, we just have to understand there's a like common sense fear, right? Like I wear a seatbelt, that doesn't mean I don't trust God, right? Okay, I'm afraid of getting thrown out of the window if I have a car wreck, so I wear a seatbelt. That, that's like a common sense fear. We all wrestle with those. They're up and down in different phases of our life. But as we walk with God by faith, we learn to set those fears aside and have hope in him, despite the fears that we wrestle with day in, day out. So I wanna focus in on this whole hiding thing. Why were they hiding him. Uh, It says here that they hid him for three months. What was that about? Well, again, remember, they had become slaves in Egypt. The king, the pharaoh, was worried about them, like rising up and revolting and taking over the country. So he started holding them down and mistreating them and abusing them. And he actually said that they were going to have to kill every male baby, which is crazy, right? It was a holocaust. It was horrible. And again, I encourage you to go back and read the story of Exodus for yourself. But here we see, you know what? Moses would never have lived to lead his people to freedom if his parents hadn't had the faith to save him first, right? And so God led them to have faith. It says, by faith, Moses was saved by his parents. So it's really talking about the parental faith, the faith of his parents here. It says they hid him for three months. And if you don't know the story, what did they do? Well, they put him in a little basket, right? put in the water so they were actually obeying the Pharaoh's terrible order because the Pharaoh's terrible order was to throw all the baby boys into the Nile River and they would be eaten by alligators or drowned, right? Well, they actually did 
throw Moses into the river. They, they technically obeyed, right? But they put him in a waterproof Moses basket. Um, how many of you ever had a Moses basket with your children? Anybody here? A couple of you? We did. We had one. Our, our grandbaby has one. Um, now, this is a different kind of Moses basket, right? Like we make Moses baskets now to carry babies around for decoration. They're beautiful, right? The actual first Moses basket, we're told in the Exodus story, they covered it in, in pitch and tar, okay? So it probably smelled bad. It was probably kind of dirty. It probably wasn't that pretty. I grabbed a picture online of a baby in a Moses basket. Um, so this is the kind we usually have, you know? It's like wicker, and there's like nice lacy sheets, and the baby looks so beautiful. You take pictures, right? Um, their basket was a waterproof basket. And here's another cool kind of literary thing in the Bible. It was actually an ark. It's the same language, for the ark that, that Noah and his family were saved in, right? So that was a giant ark in Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. This is a little tiny ark for one baby, okay? So just kind of beautiful pictures that kind of come up again and again in the scriptures. And so we see his parents having faith. Now we got to dig down a little deeper here because there's a strain, there's a funny thing here. It says, when he was born, he was hidden for three months, right? And so he was kind of saved until he's a three-month-old. One pastor surmised that maybe they did that so that he'd be easier to rescue. Because you know when a baby's brand new, they're kind of weird looking. But like at three months, they're just perfect, right? I don't know if y'all have noticed that. Um, So that was what one pastor said. I don't know if that's right. That was just guesswork on his part. But look at this. It said they, they hid him for three months before they put him in the basket because they saw that the child was beautiful. So is this kind of weird? Do y'all think this is weird? They had this great faith, but then it says, because their baby was beautiful. <laughs> You're like, okay, what, is, what does this mean? Now, first of all, we just have to admit, every parent thinks their baby's beautiful, right? Like, and by the way, I have a grandchild, and I will show you pictures if you'd like to see, because she really is beautiful, okay? <laughs> She's gorgeous, the most perfect grandbaby ever. Um, so I'd love to, I'm getting off track here. So what is this? Is this real faith if they're just doing it because he's beautiful? Well, it's pretty clear in Scripture that we're not supposed to judge the way people judge. We're supposed to judge according to the heart, not just according to outward appearance. So, like on the one hand, I think God can actually work through these natural affections. Like, God does use the natural bond between parent and child to help us to be better parents, right? And God does use the natural attraction in marriage to help us bond and have a faithful marriage. But those of us that have been parents... And those of us that have been married, we know that it's not really enough, right? It can help. Like, like me thinking my children were cute, that was helpful. But that's not really what gave me the perseverance to like stick with them for 18 years, right? There was this whole other thing called faith, right? I trusted God. I feared God. I loved God. I knew that God loved me. And that that was ultimately what helped me to overcome. So there's this kind of natural thing that God gives us. It's a gift. We think our kids are beautiful. We think our spouse is beautiful. We like our friends. You know, like those kind of natural affections, those bonds are, those are a gift. We don't have to throw those away, but we need more than that. It's, it's not enough. And so I think here what we see is this, this bigger theological thing. So then there are other cross-references as well. Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches about it, and he says something similar, like he was a remarkable child or something. You know, so the things like that. And what I think, the way we can apply this in our own lives is that all people are beautiful because we're made in the image of God. And so our dignity as persons 
Whether you feel beautiful or not, God says, I've made you in my image, so you are beautiful. And it's our job as fellow image bearers to look at other people and say, God has made you beautiful. You matter. You have dignity. And when we have that that God-based view of reality, that human beings have intrinsic value because they're made in the image of God, then we're, we're taking a step in the right direction of like, okay, I'm, I'm starting to see the world the way God does. And that's, that's, we're on our way to being used by him for his glory and his faithfulness in the world. So I think that's the application for us, right? So was Moses special? Yeah. Was he the greatest hero of the Old Testament? Yeah, right? But I think there's something here that we can apply of like, we're, we're also called to see children as beautiful. Do you see other image bearers as beautiful? Do you recognize their inherent dignity? That God says they matter, even though culture might say they don't matter, right? In our culture, we might say, well, people only matter if, if you know, they have enough money or if they come from the right neighborhood or if they do things we like, you know, whatever it is. It's probably an endless list of value that depending on where you grew up and what you listen to and what you watch, right? You might have these kind of like ways of counting people's value. They got to be strong or they got to be good looking or whatever, no, God says, all people are beautiful because I made them. I made them to reflect my image in the world. That's, that's our purpose. And so we need to have that same kind of parental faith. That's where we can be the same as Moses' parents. So do you value your own children? I mean, that's where we got to start, right? If your parents, half of you are parents, do you value your own kids? Or do you see them as like an obstacle that get in the way of your success? talking to Chris Webster, our, our worship pastor, the other day. By the way, thank you, Keelan, for leading us today. Keelan's one of our teens here, and he did a great job leading while Chris was gone. Um, you can give him a hand. Give him a hand. Thank you. Thanks, man. Um, but that other guy that usually leads us in worship, Chris Webster, I was talking to him, and this was months ago, maybe a couple of years ago. He read some article. It was talking about how um, it's not financially reasonable to have children, right? Like, Somebody, maybe this was a financial or a business magazine, was trying to make the case that, yeah, kids will cost you more than they return. And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> like, doesn't everybody know that? Is that like rocket science? Is that a new discovery that we have now? Yeah, they're a lot of work, okay? So if you're thinking of having kids, just so you know, they're not going to solve all your problems, right? They're not going to just make your life all better and rosy. No, it's, it's going to be hard work. But by faith, we see them as beautiful. They're a gift from God. When we do a baby dedication, a baby dedication is where basically as a community, we bring in a baby and we say, God, this is your baby. We accept this baby as a gift. We're going to try to be good stewards. Parents are going to try to raise this baby to know you and to love you and to love other people. Church, we're going to ask you to pray for us and support us as we try to raise these children to know and love God. And we always read Psalm 121. This says that children are a gift from God. They're like arrows in the hands of a warrior. They're meant to be sent out. They're not like this treasure that we are to like protect forever and hold on to and never let go, right? We're actually to prepare them to be sent out in the world, to be image bearers for God, to make an impact in this world. One of the things I think it's important to know is to have children at all in a broken, scary world is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. Because if you're just to calculate it based on how much money they're going to make you or how happy they're going to make you, or like, should I bring another human into a world of pain and suffering, right? There's all kinds of reasons to say, nope, shouldn't do that. 
But God says, no, they're a gift. And this is part of my good design. The world is broken. And God says, throughout the Bible, I'm, I'm going to use humans in the fixing of this world that humans broke. Now, Jesus is the ultimate human who solves it all. He's the one that ultimately fixes it. But by faith in Jesus, we're restored to our full humanity. We begin to image God, as Colossians says, reflect that image of our creator the way we're supposed to as we walk in faith with God. But it starts with parental faith. It starts with someone that has faith telling other people that maybe don't have faith yet, you're beautiful. God made you for bigger things. I hope you see that. God wants to use you in that same way. So parents, it's on you, it's on us to recognize that we've been deputized. We're the the ones responsible for that in our own family. I think we live in a culture where we're always kind of delegating and offloading, right? Well, no, that's the school's job, or, you know, that's the youth group's job, or that's somebody else's job, that's the therapist's job. No, it's your job. It's your job to love your child, to disciple your child as a disciple of Jesus, to raise them, to discipline them, to teach them, to love them, to lead them. That's your job. Can you get help? Yeah, that's why we do baby dedications. Baby dedications are like, please help me, church, right? Like, I need help. I can't do this by myself. We need help. We need friends. We need family. We need teachers. We need encouragers. We need coaches. We need uncles and aunts in the body of Christ. Like, we need all the help we can get, but don't think it's their job and not yours. If you're a parent, if you have kids, it's your job. You've been deputized. You got the badge. You're in charge. Now, lean on other people. Draw on other wisdom, but you're in charge. So don't neglect your duties. Don't abdicate. In our culture, we do it in endless ways. I think the number one way we're doing it right now is screens. We let screens raise children, and it's killing them. So don't give up your duty, your responsibility as a parent to raise your children. Now, here's the other side of that. I think God calls all of us to play this role. Okay, so parents, it's on you with your kids to raise your kids, right? But you lean on the body of Christ, and the whole body of Christ should have this parental faith where we see others as made in the image of God, and we encourage that, and we fan that into flame. So a beautiful passage for this is Isaiah 54, 55, and 56. These are prophecies that Isaiah is making about the new covenant community that, that we live in now, the body of Christ. And he's saying in the future, there will be no barren women. The world we live in now, there are no barren women. They don't exist. There are no eunuchs. Those are men that can't have babies. That category does not exist in the new covenant people of God because we are all spiritually fruitful. If you're a part of the new covenant, you are giving spiritual life to others. So I hope you see that. I know this can be heartbreaking for those that desire to have kids or haven't been able to have kids, but I I want you to see that God has this this beautiful vision for you to be spiritually fruitful. God calls all of us to that in the kingdom of God. He calls all of us to encourage others to to have new life, right? To to rebirth, to, to this whole being born again, that Jesus describes in John chapter 3. We're all called to that. We're, we're the community that brings new life, that has this kind of parental faith, where we see not only are you made in the image of God and you're beautiful and he delights in you with this intrinsic value just because you're a human, but God saw your sin. He saw your rebellion and he didn't leave you in it, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took your sin upon himself on the cross. He gave his life for you and we We are midwives, spiritually speaking, helping people to come 
to new birth in Christ. So I hope you see that responsibility that we all have as the children of God to help others to be children of God. That's the community that we live in. We should have a parental faith. Okay, second point, leadership faith. We see in verses 24, 25, 26, and 27, these four verses, that Moses had this unique faith that caused him to be a leader, right? It was his faith in God, not how awesome he was, but his faith in God and how awesome God was. And so there are kind of two parallel ideas. We've talked about this before. Hebrew poetry is, is parallelism where it will not rhyme sounds so much, but it will rhyme ideas, which is really cool. It makes Hebrew poetry the most translatable poetry in the world. Uh, by God's good design, it's a poetry that can translate into any language because he's rhyming concepts in Hebrew poetry, not just rhyming words. And so we see a little bit of poetic language here in the author to Hebrews, where he says uh, in verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 27, there's a parallel. Skip down to verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured to seeing him who is invisible. So we've got parallels here of him leaving the honors of being Pharaoh's daughter, right? Being part of the royal family or not being afraid of the king and leaving Egypt, leaving that power, leaving that prestige. So both of these verses kind of have a parallel of Moses was leaving behind these great riches, these earthly treasures that he had. Okay, and then verse 25 and 26 says it in parallel ways as well. Uh, Verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He had an option. He said, I'm going to choose to be mistreated. I'm going to choose to be a slave with the people of God rather than to enjoy these fleeting pleasures of sin. He's choosing this earthly suffering over earthly pleasure, right? And then again, parallel, verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So, mistreated with the people of God, reproach of Christ, right? Fleeting pleasures of sin, treasures of Egypt. You see the parallelism there? He gave up one thing to have the other. And God is going to call on us to do the same kind of thing. God's going to say, trust me. I know the sin looks really pleasurable right now, right? And we all can say, yeah, sin is often quite pleasurable. But God says, I have something better for you. I love you more than you love yourself. And sin seems great for a time, but it will addict and destroy you. It will enslave you. Give that up and, and, and run with me. Come to me. Trust me. So God's always laying that decision before us. And so it's framing Moses' leadership in that same light. And he was, at the, he was at the top. This was the world's greatest empire. He had, he had all access to everything, Right? Whatever he could dream of. He had it all. He had power and fame and glory and money and pleasure and all these things. He gave that up to be with the people of God. And the author of Hebrews says even to be with Christ, to suffer reproach with Christ, right? And again, this is where we see this this unity between Old and New Testament. He's calling him Christ, right? We would say, and that's kind of a New Testament revelation of Jesus as the Christ, the ultimate Messiah. But even in the Old Testament, they were trusting God. 
We know now with full revelation, that's God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the, the unity of everything that God was doing there. But here we see Moses in the Old Testament trusting in God. And it says he was looking to the reward. There was a greater reward for him in walking with God. Okay, verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So again, I talked about this earlier with the not being afraid of the parents. And here we see he wasn't afraid of the anger of the king. If you go read the Exodus story, read the story. I'm not hiding this from you. It looks like he was afraid of the king, okay? So what do we do when we have these conflicts in scripture? Well, if you're a professor at the average college, you say, see, you shouldn't believe in the Bible anymore because there are apparent conflicts. But if you actually want to listen to God, if you actually want to Uh, honor him and his word, wrestle with it a little bit, okay? Don't be lazy and just give up on the whole book every time you see something that seems like a conflict. And I would say that this is a really clear and simple thing because we understand this with our own common sense. Yeah, I can be afraid of, of trusting God with my money, with my health, with my relationships and doing what he says. But in the end, I can say, but you know what? He's taught me that I can trust him, so I'm gonna trust him even though there's a part of me that's still kind of afraid, right? And that's what we see played out here. There's like a momentary fearfulness. Man, I'm scared what's going to go down. If I obey God, it's going to not go well with me. I might lose some friendships. I might lose power. I might lose prestige. That, that is kind of scary. But you know what? I trust God more. I fear him more. Jesus says, don't fear the ones that can kill the body, but fear him who can kill the soul in hell. There's like, you know, one fear is more important than the other fear? Do we have a greater value of the greater ultimate spiritual eternal reward of walking with God? And so we see this worked out in our common sense every day. Yeah, there was a sense in which he was afraid, but he went ahead and he he trusted God anyway. And we see that worked out over many chapters. That's what we've seen with all these Old Testament heroes. It wasn't just like a light switch and they magically had faith and they never doubted again. It's up and down, just like with you and me. They were learning day by day to trust God with more and more of their life. Now, I think it's important also that we keep the order straight here when we talk about that faith, because it can sound like because he was so brave and did the right thing and gave up these treasures and gave up these pleasures, therefore God rewarded him with faith in eternal life. And that's not the biblical order of things. The biblical order of things is that I look at God and I recognize by faith his provision for me I see that I can trust him, and that's why I begin to obey him. Really important to get that order straight. We don't obey in order to get blessing from God. We see God is a God who initiates and moves towards us in grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to clean up your act. He came after you in Jesus. If you have any doubt, look at the cross. Read the New Testament. It spells it out explicitly. So we see this pattern throughout the Bible. No, God moves towards us in love and grace. We respond in faith and faith is just like, okay, I trust you. I can't save myself. I need you. And then we begin to follow him because we trust him. We've learned that he's trustworthy. We see that he's good. And so we start to obey him. I grabbed a picture here of uh, airport security. We've got a guy going through a a, a little lane called the fast track. I don't know if y'all have this. I have to confess here a little jealousy if y'all have this like fast pass or pre-TSA, check, check up whatever thing. I don't know. Like back in May, Autumn and I went to do a wedding. So we flew for the first time in two years. And man, that's a hassle. And you know, you're going through security and you're like, okay, 
there's this one line where people just go, and they just zoom through, right? And there's no line at all. And then there's our line where it's like 500 people. We have to take off all our clothes and unpack all of our bags. It's like, this is horrible. Why am I over in this line? How, do, how could I get in that line, right? I don't know if you've ever thought this. I'm not sure if you know. Let me know afterwards. I don't know how to get in that fast lane. But that's like, that's what Moses was giving up, right? From an earthly standard, he had it all. He had access. He was welcomed. And he said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust God anyway. What changes your mind, right? What, what moves you from here to here? What moves you is God's movement towards you. And again, we see that most clearly in the gospel, but the author to Hebrews is saying, yeah, they, they saw that too. God was moving in their life, showing them, you can trust me. I'm good. I love you. Sin seems great, but I've got something better for you. Trust me. I've provided for you. I've given myself to you. You can trust me. And God begins to change our heart. So how do we apply this? A leadership faith. Um, I think as we see that God is trustworthy, we'll give up access, privilege, power, resources, whatever it might be, as we see that it can be used for his glory, right? God will step by step say, hey, you've got this thing, you're holding on to that pretty tightly. Can you let go of that and trust me? I've got something new for you over here. Now, I want to be clear. It's not a just reckless, Christians are the people that just give up everything all the time, no matter what. That's not really how it works, right? Like sometimes God gives you power and authority, and he wants you to use that and be faithful to him. We see that with Daniel. Daniel had this great position in the ancient empires, and God worked through that authority and position that Daniel had. The people of God, though, are always willing to give that up. So that's really my question for you. Are, are you willing to give it up if God asks you to give it up? whether that be money or authority or position or job or relationships, if God says, hey, I need need you to obey me in this way, are you willing to obey him? And again, you you don't do it to win his love. You do it because you're convinced he loves you already. That's faith. Faith is, I know he loves me, so I'm willing to trust him and follow him. That's different than what we sometimes called legalism or what the Pharisees struggled with was, God has to bless me because I've done all these religious things. And God, you owe it to me. That's, that's a different category. Faith is, I trust you, God. I see, I see that you are trustworthy and that you love me and you've given to me, and so I'm going to follow you. Even if it feels like I'm giving something up, even if it feels scary, even if it feels really hard, I'm willing to give that up and to, to walk with you because I see that you're worth it. How does this translate? For, for Moses, then, it translated into a humility where he gave up this great authority and position of power, and he served with people who often grumbled against him. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, like they, they did not respect his authority on many occasions, right? And so it was a humble leadership. How does this translate? In our culture, uh, we, we want to see strong people serving others in love, following the pattern of a Jesus who washed his disciples' feet, right? So we have a church where strong people stoop to serve children, to love children in our ministries. We have a church community where people with, with riches give up their riches to help other people, to bless them, to encourage them. Uh, one that's really hard is we have a church where modern, busy, overcommitted Americans are, are willing to give up their time to love others, to listen to others, to talk to others about their problems, to encourage them in their faith. 
Is God bringing you to that place where you're, you're willing to give that gift of time, of resources, your skills, whatever it might be to serve others? Now, I know that a lot of you might be thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not a leader. Like a leader is somebody with an, an office, right, or an important job or something like that. No, we're all, we're all leaders, right? There's always someone, one or two people that you're influencing, we talk a lot about three-by-five groups. We say, if you can't join a small group, just start a group. Just grab another friend and say, hey, man, I'm no leader, but we could pray for each other, right? Or, hey, woman, if you're a woman. Uh, <laughs> like, we could at least pray for each other. We can walk beside each other. We, can, we could read a Bible verse. We could pray for each other. And so that's, that's, that's leadership. That's looking at your, your circle of influence and saying, I want to I encourage other people next to me. We'd love for you to take that step. It might be serving in an official ministry here. We're always calling people to get involved to serve, not just to help us, you know, meet all our numbers and agenda, but it's for you to apprentice with Jesus, to learn service, to learn humble leadership in the school of Jesus and Moses, serving on a team. It might be giving financially to the church. I'd encourage you to just try and say, you know what? This sounds scary. I am a little bit of afraid of this, but I'm going to trust God and move through those fears. So I'm going to give it six months, or I'm going to give it a year. I'm just going to try. I'm just going to try giving for a year. I'm going to try serving on one of these teams for a year. I'm going to try doing one of these accountability groups or small groups. I'm just going to jump in and try it. And God, help, help me to see that you can use me, even though I feel like I'm not usable. Moses felt that way as well. When you read the story, Moses is like, I can't do this. God was like, no, I'll, I'll go with you. You can do this. So this brings us to the last point, and this is saving faith. Um, so again, there are, there are too many connections to point out, but throughout the Old Testament, the people of God, Psalms, prophets, all over the place, there's all this poetry that's like, how do we know God is good? Oh yeah, he saved us in the Exodus. We're always looking back to that. And the same thing in the New Testament. How do we know God is good? Look to the cross. See what God did for you in Jesus. And so we're supposed to connect these things. And I want to show you another connection point that helps that to go a little bit deeper, and that's the Passover. Verse 28, we see saving faith in the Passover. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. What does that mean? Again, read the Exodus story, some scary stuff, some crazy stuff. But when the Pharaoh, when the king of Egypt refused to let the people of God go, there's a great song about that, Let My People Go. I won't sing it for you, but it's a great song. Um, Moses was like, hey, God said, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, no, can't do that. So God kept sending plagues. What's fascinating is those plagues were miraculous ways that God was defeating the gods of Egypt, right? So these plagues of gnats and frogs and uh, death and disease and all these things that were happening, the Nile, this was attacking the Egyptian leadership at the point of their false gods. He's like, this God can't save you. 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 God was proving to them for the whole world to see in the greatest empire of the time that he was the true God. And there was this final plague after he'd warned them and warned them and warned them and warned them. I I want you to see if this is one of your struggles with the Old Testament where God actually kills people. That God always warns people a million times. Before any death and destruction ever happens, there's a million warnings. He says, turn, turn, turn. Trust me, trust me, trust me. Come to me, I will save you. Come to me, I will save you. Come to me, I will save you. And so we get to that point where there's the plague of the firstborn. And God says, I'm going to kill all the firstborn males. I'm going to kill all the princes. I'm going to kill all the tribal chiefs of every family. 
they're going to pay the debt for their family. And we've talked about this some in our Hebrew series already. They're going to pay that ultimate debt. But if you trust me, they'll be saved. You'll be saved. Your family will be saved. Trust me. And he says, slaughter a lamb. Offer an animal sacrifice in the place of the firstborn. And sprinkle that blood over the door. I got a picture of them painting the blood over the door. They'd put it over their doorposts. They were given very specific instructions. The symbolism of this, again, from a distance, because we're modern people. Most of us have never slaughtered an animal before. It seems disgusting and distant and weird to us. But there was great depth and beauty here. We all know we owe a debt to God. We all know that we're broken. And yet God offers this free grace of a sacrifice to take our place. Payment for us. And we are supposed to see Jesus as we look at that picture. We're supposed to see that. It's alluded to in many different ways. Uh, One that's easy is John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he's like, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's an easy one. And then in 1 Corinthians, I need to look this one up. It's 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul is saying, the author of Hebrews has said this repeatedly, Jesus is the ultimate, better, perfect sacrifice. Trust in him. And so what I want you to see, number one, is the whole Bible holds together is this beautiful literary tapestry It's the best book there is. It's supernatural. You should trust this book because it's speaking to you with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. But more than that, I want you to see that we can also have a saving faith, just like the people of God who said, okay, this is weird, but we're going to trust God. We're going to paint this blood over our doorpost. We'll trust him. They were saved. And that became their new identity as the saved people of God. In the same way, we can say, this is weird, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to think that I can save myself through money or good health or taking the right vitamins or getting the right job. That's what my world tells me. If I just have the right relationships, I'll be saved. If I have enough money, I'll be saved. But God tells me, no, trust in Jesus. Jesus is your only hope. Jesus, by dying on the cross for your sins, takes away that penalty of sin, and he gives you his resurrection life. God then sees you as beautiful, as perfect as his own son. Trust in him. Paint the blood of Jesus over the, the doorpost of, of your own heart, your own life. And that's saving faith. So we see this beautiful picture that's too good to not be true, right? And I want to end here with one more New Testament connection. Jesus, uh, there's this story in the Gospels. Let me double check this. I can't remember if it's in just three of the Gospels or all four of the Gospels. But it's sometimes called the Mount of Transfiguration. Have you all ever heard of this before? It's a famous Jesus story. And what happens is Jesus goes with some of his kind of inner circle disciples. It's Peter, James, and John. They go up on a mountain. And Jesus has this miraculous conversation with Moses and Elijah, the two greatest heroes of the Old Testament. And they're all glowing. That's why the word transfigured is used. It's like, The disciples are seeing Jesus and Moses and Elijah in their kind of full, heavenly, perfected, glorified state, right? They're glowing. There's like energy coming out of them, and it's terrifying and beautiful, and they're just amazed. And it's really funny because Peter's like, 
hey, Jesus, I've got a plan. Let's build a tent for you and for Moses and Elijah. And then the text says, because Peter didn't know what he was saying, right? <laughs> he was like so shocked. He just started coming up with stuff like, hey, let's, let's build some buildings. We'll just live here forever, you know? And it's like, no, no, that's not the answer. God's voice then comes down and says, this is my son, listen to him. So it's pretty good corrective for Peter there. Good corrective for us as well. But before that part happens... The text in Luke, as Luke tells the story, Luke 9, 31, says that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word in Greek, departure, the Greek word is exodus. So Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. What do they want to talk with him about? The exodus that Jesus is accomplishing. They're like, man, and we got to do some cool stuff in the Old Testament, but Jesus, this is awesome. <laughs> the real exodus, the ultimate exodus. So we're tempted to think that our real problem is maybe economic slavery. Our real problem is the, the cancer diagnosis that we're wrestling with or the relational problems that we have. And those are real problems. And God can bring substantial healing to those things in our lives. But the scripture is clear that we have a, a bigger problem and that is our slavery to sin and death. And that through Jesus, through what he's done on the cross, by dying for us, by rising from the dead, he's accomplished the ultimate exodus to lead us out of that slavery. And that is now our new identity. Every year they would rehearse the Passover. The Jews would be like, this is who we are. We're the people that God saved. They'd have this Passover meal. They'd celebrate God's goodness. This is our new identity. And that's what we should do as well. Every day. This is who I am. I'm somebody that God loved by grace. He saved me. I belong to him. I'm his child. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you save us. And Jesus, we pray that, that we would be able, be able to live this out, that this would affect how we parent, how we mentor, how we lead others, how we love others, that we would recognize that you've given us many things, but often we're called to lay those aside like Jesus did when he left the comforts of heaven and he came and he served us and he died for us. Help us to follow Jesus, Lord. Help us to follow in his steps. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.